New Black Nation, your political digest with a Black conservative twist. Hello, everyone. I am Brandon Wang. And I am Gregory Victorian. And this is New Black Nation podcast coming to you for our second episode. Um, we're so happy to talk to you guys today about a very interesting subject that a lot of us seem to uh, find very important, and that's the topic of reparations, welfare, um, and local investment into inner cities. Um, so we want to kind of have a fruitful discussion, you know, with a kind of um, interesting twist, you know, in our personal experiences, um, you know, both uh, Greg and I have um, very, I guess, unique experiences in our own ways, um, and we differ in some ways. Um, Greg was very used to being in the inner city lifestyle um, and, and hanging out in Brooklyn, uh, particularly during some interesting times. Um, and I myself uh, are not used to that lifestyle, and I was definitely raised in a very... Uh, middle-class sort of environment, um, still very much predominantly black, but certainly a middle-class area. I wouldn't consider it an inner city area. Um, so it'll be interesting, I guess, to try to see how our differences are in, in an in opinion as it relates to reparations and welfare and what we think um, the inner city communities might like today. Um, so Greg, let's just start out with a major question. Um, the major question I would say is, do you think that black people in the inner cities truly just want that check, like a reparations check for past slavery? Or do you think that, you know, they would want, you know, to get more investment into their communities locally? Well, I think with the black community, <clears throat> they were trained to think that that way. So, you know, them saying that, okay, um, Dr. King fought the fight, you know, I don't have to work, I don't have to do this, I don't have to do that, you just have to give me my check. Um, a lot of people take it out of context, okay? So <clears throat> most people will rather control their own life financially, they would rather be more independent instead of being controlled. Because let's face it, you receiving that money and sitting at home is basically, you know, killing you spiritually, mentally, physically. So I don't think most black people want the check. I think most black people was trained to think that they they deserve to have the check, uh, regardless if they um, earn it or not. I think we were trained that this is okay, and therefore, you know, we grew up thinking that okay, it's okay. I'm gonna get mine, and that's that. And we train our children to think the same way. But if you give us a choice to be financial, financially independent, if not all, most of them will choose to be financially independent. 
Right. And I find it very, um, I find it very interesting because then when we're generally having the conversation about reparations, um, you, it, we have a tendency to see that there's a ton of people, you know, who are kind of calling out that, you know, there should be, you know, a monetary check that's given out. And, and for me personally, I've always thought that it would be much better, you know, if we're really broaching the topic of reparations to just, really have something in place financially in terms of an investment portfolio that can, like you said, make people financially independent. Because I always happen to think that, you know, if you just give someone a check and they really don't have the, you know, financial savviness, right, to kind of make their money work for them and and, and extend the money on, you know, beyond, then I think it's, dead walking, you know, or it's dead from the beginning, you know, and, you know, we just find yourself in a scenario like people who, you know, win money in the lottery, right? And they, they start out by winning a, a huge amount of money um, and they get it all in a lump sum. And then quite soon, you know, they find themselves broke again. Um, and these, this is my only worry with just giving a standardized check, like you just want lump sum check out to people. Like I, I find it more important to, you know, put that money into education, put that money into business training programs, uh, financial literacy programs, as well as loan money that would help people get businesses, et cetera. Well, uh, you know, for someone, you know, with a good understanding, that would make sense. But for, for a whole lot of us, you know, think about it, right? That money comes with condition. You cannot work or, you know, um, you cannot have a bank account. So you basically end a mental slavery. Um, you're not independent. That's what, that's what this money basically uh, is given for. You're not allowed to have um, to own a house. You're not allowed to have nothing. Think about how many people and how long have they been receiving this money. By now, most of them should have been in the middle class area because you're receiving uh, free money. You know, your rent is almost paid for. So why not save that money? You know, it goes back in school. We were not trained or we were not taught to save. We were taught to spend. So can you elaborate a little bit more on like that specific, you know, your specific experience growing up in the inner city? Because I think, uh, you know, I'll be the first one to say that a lot of us, and I've had conversations with several people that I know, um, you know, who also grew up in the inner cities. And I'm always the first one to say, you know, I, I never tried to speak for the people in the inner cities, you know, and it's almost as if they're, you know, although we're both you know, we're both black, you know, we had very different upbringings, you know, there were different things that we had to worry about and different things that we had to experience in school. So I'm wondering if you could, like, tell me a little bit more about your experience growing up in an inner city school. And because you talked a lot about, you know, they, they, there's this training that's that's kind of always happened throughout people's lives, and particularly in the inner cities. So whether that be from school, et cetera, or from their parents teaching them certain um, lifestyle approaches or, you know, but give us a sense on the audience, you know, what it was like growing up in the inner city. You see, in the inner city, um, based on my experience and my friends, 
Um, our parents play a very small role in our upbringing because oftentimes they have two or three jobs. Um, you know, we 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 being taught in school, and basically um, by the thugs, you know, in the corner or by rock music itself. So, you know, here's you know here was the level of education because this is the people that are training us. So, you know, it's it's it, it's rough um, growing up in the hood because. We are surrounded by is it a you know pimp, um, prostitute, drugs, alcohol. It's all there. Like you know, you don't have to walk very far to get to none of these things. They they right they they they're in your neighborhood. So our mentality is what you know. I gotta get mine. So it's it's, it's always a selfish mentality that we have that. Whatever we have is never enough to satisfy us. So we have to keep grinding to get more. And when you get, you know, free check on top of it and you're not doing nothing, um, um, you know, good with it, as, you know, because all you're doing is buying clothes, buying this, buying that, your rent is paid for, the money blow in a few weeks. You have nothing but time in your hand. The corner is all you have. So to a lot of my friends that I experienced this going through, they have so much time in their hand, you know, that's when the crime started. That's when, you know, our um, little habits started because now I'm getting free money. I don't have to work for it. My rent is being paid for. I have nothing but time in my hand. And for those of us that don't have a good um, structure at the house, uh, we don't have a good um, parent figure, um, we fall victim, you know, to the street life. Right. And with you, you had a very interesting, you know, kind of scenario and a situation growing up. Like, you know, you, you know, grew up from a house, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you grew up in a house that, you know, had a two-parent household. And, you know, your father was very strict um, and really kind of had a high expectation for you and what you were looking at. So could you talk a, a little bit briefly about like what your parents did for you that kind of changed the trajectory and helped you get out of the inner city lifestyle? You see, my parents never gave up. The whole, the whole idea, you know, um, my parents never believe in the idea that, oh, you know, if I beat my kid, they're going to call the cops or they, the cops going to come and took my kids away. They don't care if you call the cops. You're under their roof. Their rules is their rules. You understand? Right. Um, nobody's going to dictate how they raise their kids. And that was one of the things, you know, um, back then I could say, okay, um, you know, when you um, lost, you don't know much, so you think everybody is against you. I think that was the one of the best things that my parents ever did. They never let go. They never gave up, and they keep pushing. Um, if I come home with a five-dollar bills, they didn't give me that five-dollar bills. They have to know where that five-dollar bill came from. And those are the kind of parents that you know I had. They didn't care about you calling the cops. And it, they, this thing doesn't concern them. 
What concerns them is you are my responsibility. If you come here with a bag of uh, um, um, crack or you have a, a, a kilo in your bag, you come inside of my house to break down the door, all of us are going to get arrested. That's how they look at it. So because all of us is going to get arrested, you're going to do what I asked you to do, and you're going to do it. So my parents never gave up. They keep pushing and, you know, until one day, you know, I got it. And here's the good thing. If you don't have a, my parents, you know, they couldn't talk to me because there was always a back and forth. But they know people that I was cool with. So just because they couldn't communicate certain things to me, they approached someone that they knew I was cool with to approach me in certain subjects. Mm. So they had different tactics to use to get through because it was six of us in the house and I was the only one causing problems for them. You know, my other siblings didn't have a behavior problem. They didn't have uh, uh, a learning problem. They didn't have um, certain things. You know, the things that I was facing, they were not facing it. You understand? So with me, um, they were more you know, hush towards me, but the reason why I was the one out there hanging out in the corner. My other siblings wasn't. I was the one doing this. I was the one doing that. I was the one getting suspended, you know. So, <laughs> uh, of course, you know, the reaction is going to be different. Um, but now I see how much of a blessing that it was uh, for me growing up, because if it had not been that, if it was just my mother, things probably could have been different, even though she was tough herself. Right. And I'm sure we can definitely uh, all agree, uh, you know, across the radio waves that, you know, single black mothers are extremely strong and, you know, they have a lot to do, but of course they cannot do it all by themselves. So uh, that brings me to a very important question that I'd like to follow up and ask you on as well, because, you know, I wanted to start off with you talking a little bit more about, you know, the benefits of you having a two parent household and, and what that was able to do for you and the fact that your parents had, didn't give up on you. But now the question then turns into, you know, what can children do who don't have a parent at all. Perhaps they're living with a grandmother or they're living with an aunt or they're perhaps in the system or, you know, a plethora of other, you know, family options, right? So anything that's un unlike the nuclear family, you know, what could we say would be something that would help the mentality and help the people in the inner cities who are struggling with those type of issues? The, the thing is, right, for single mothers, what happened is once teenagers turn 18, well, not even 18, 15, 16, 14, we started being rebellious. And our body developed, you know, differently. Um, sooner or later, we're looking like we're more buff and bigger than our mothers. So there's only so much they, they're going to do because they don't want to get attacked because the system is... We are allowed to beat our parents, but our parents are not allowed to beat us. So they're scared to lay down the rules, especially if they're by themselves. With a father figure, you know, there's strength in the house. 
because you are a man, I'm a man, so we're going to do this, and I'm going to make you do what I have, uh, uh, what is it that you should be doing. I would say um, for single mother, um, for me, here's what work. I, I'm going to give you an example of one of my friends. In order for me to, to be where I am today, my parents had to get me out of Brooklyn. So they sacrificed almost all their friends, everything that they had to move to Jersey. And even then, I did not want to go to Jersey with them. My father begged me to come and look at the house that they wanted. He, as a matter of fact, he told me, choose whatever house. You get to choose. You understand? So mm -hmm. they made a sacrifice, sacrifice their friend, their life in New York to come in, in, um, to Jersey in the place where at 9 p.m. the bus stopped running just so they could save one of the... So my thing would be if any parent or any single mother have a, a child that they're having problem with and if they have any other family member that live in a um, suburban area, that would be one option to reach out to that family member to say if they could take that troubled child away from you so they could have a different environment. Because believe it or not, that's, that's one of the things that could help change someone's life, the environment. If you constantly, your friends know where to find you, trouble is right around the corner. You're constantly going to get in trouble because... There's nobody here to give you a good example. There's nobody here to tell you, no, this is wrong. And the person that's doing it, you don't want to listen to them. The other thing I would say, um, you know, find out, you know, who does that child listen to and approach that person and have that person engage your child in a conversation about their behavior and what they're doing wrong. There are different tactics, you know, has a single parent most of them does, does not have the time because they're working two or three jobs. So half of the time, the thugs in the corner, they all, you know, they replace the parent hall. They become our parents. They don't want to giving us advice. So that's where the problem is. Um, for a single parent, it's very hard and complicated and difficult, um, which is why, you know, I don't really, you know, support it. And I understand people don't do it because they want to do it. It's just things that happen. But it, it, it's just hard for a single mother. Right. And 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 those are, I think, are really good options as well. Um, but I think you, you mentioned something earlier, you know, that I think is also really important as well. And that, that has to deal with you know, after school programs, because you kind of alluded to it earlier when we were talking about it, because there are certain scenarios where, you know, parents are not going to have the opportunity to be able to, you know, take their kids out like your parents did um, and move them to New Jersey or move them to a suburb, right? So, you know, there has to be some kind of solution that could help for people who are in particularly in the inner cities and, and working on those, on, on those type of issues. Um, and I think after school programs are a really big thing um, or a big help in this sense. Uh, for helping them in these particular issues. So, 
what did you uh what would you say about that like you know growing up did you ever you know participate in any after school program um yeah. did you see after school programs do you have your kids in after school programs now etc how beneficial were they i participated in a lot of after school program mm -hmm. depending on where the after school program is because um in the junction in brooklyn that's the hood the after school program is in the hood so, you know, your parents is at work till six o'clock. You're in that program till eight o'clock. I was in an after school program called St. Jerome. It's in Nostrum, um, um, in, in Brooklyn. You know, after they help us with our homework, you know, they let us play a little video game in the computer. And then we go downstairs in the gym and play um, basketball. By eight o'clock, you know, you're on your way home. But by eight o'clock, you know, you're still in the hood, so you live in the hood to go home. Your parents is not with you, so you're still exposed. So the after-school program, it depends on where it is. Um, it is good. It does work. But I will choose carefully which after-school program to send my kids into. And my kids, personally, I do send them to after-school program and stuff, but my wife picked them up or I'll pick them up, or my brother will pick them up. A family member will pick them up. They do not walk by themselves home, or would I allow it? Because the whole point is trying to keep that kid safe, and the person you want to influence your kids is you until they're old enough to understand right from wrong. So, even if you send your kids to after school program, you still have to have a family member pick them up to bring them back home. The whole idea is to not let them on their own uh, in the street because trust me, the thugs, they're recruiting. They're always recruiting. And if they see him by himself or they see her by herself, sooner or later they're going to approach. Right. So that's why we would definitely, you know, you hear a lot of people talking about how it's so important for after school programs to 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 be in place and, you know, extracurricular activities that are available for these kids. And the unfortunate part about a lot of these areas is that, you know, they really don't have the funding for it. Right. And they don't have the funding for, you know, specialty programs and these co programs are constantly being cut you know, from these inner city communities. So if they're constantly being cut because, you know, their tax, local in income tax is not affording um, these type of programs or they're getting these type of cuts, then it, it almost makes it virtually impossible, you know, for these children to actually succeed and do more with their lives and escape the life, right? Yeah. Me personally, um, me personally, I think, you know, if if they regulate the welfare system, put half of that money into our kids' education instead of closing down those programs, they, it will be a lot, 100% better in our community. Mm. Yeah, I'm hearing, because, huh? you know, I'm hearing that a lot from a lot of different people. Um, and, you know, when I talk to people from in the, in the inner city, that's always the biggest, one of the biggest things that I hear is that we need to have more funding back to these, these after school programs. Yeah, there's none right now. Like, you know, 
you have <laughs> there's a lot of things that kids could get involved in. Uh, you know, in my, in my school, they had football practice, soccer, they have drama, you know, they have, um, you know, um, singing, people that, you know, love to sing. They have a program for almost anything and everything that you want to be part of. So they, they give you options. It's not them choosing for you, they give you options. So you have your own option to choose. And when you have those kind of options, it, you know, it, it will uh, prompt you to even engage more because you know they they didn't choose for you. You choose on your own, so you're gonna want to make the sacrifice to be there. You're gonna want to be there because it's something that you're interested in. They have to make this after-school program interested for them. And you know the most important thing uh, with the after-school program, the one that I used to go to, even though it was in the hood, they make sure your homework, your schoolwork, everything is done and then some before you go to any kind of activities. They didn't just let you go to activities and that's that. Then it defeats the whole purpose of the after-school program. A lot of things, a lot of my friends, their after-school program mean they just go there to hang out and pick up girls and have fun and hang out. That's, that's it. It cannot be that kind of um, after-school program. It have to be an after-school program that focuses on education more than anything else. Hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely understand where you're coming from with that one. It has to be like, you know, education first, and we really have to make sure that we're setting goals for children and we're saying, you know, you need to, you know, achieve this goal for today or you need to be at this competency level, you know, and reward you know, the children for that. And, and, you know, I think most school systems have some form of a reward system in place for children. Um, but we, we see a major lack in that in inner city communities. And, and that counts for both white, black, Latino, poor communities in general, you know, really just don't have a good system of, of, of merit-based, a uh, merit-based system that really encourages um, you know, positive outcomes. And a lot of times that's due to the fact that they don't have enough money in the budget. So my question here to follow up on that is, well, if they don't have a lot of money and if they're not paying a lot of money into income taxes, because generally in poor communities, we're seeing that, you know, they have a tendency to be taking in or getting subsidies from, you know, the tax contributions. How can we really ensure that money is funneled, then funneled back into these programs? If a lot of the the money in these cities uh, are in terms of tax collection is not there, so how do we fund the programs? Otherwise, well, it's, it's it's very easy to do. Stop the wars. You go into to wars to fight, you know, battles that's not yours. But yet, kids are going hungry in certain communities. There is, there is certain things that, you know, we can stop. Let, let's look at it, right? A whole parent's job is for their kids not to suffer the way they did. It's, it's for them to be in a higher educational level um, than them, for them to have a better job than them. My father's struggle wasn't for me to do what he did. My mother's struggle wasn't for, for her uh, um, for me to do what she did. It was for me to be above and beyond. It was for me to be in a higher level of the education. So 
we go into war, we're spending billions in war. Even though those communities, they don't have, you know, a lot of tax collected from it. There's, there's a reason why you put them on welfare. So if they don't, if not, if they're not working to pay the tax, how are they gonna pay the tax? You giving it to them. You telling them that they don't have to work. So if you giving it to them, they don't have to work. So therefore, they're not paying tax. Of course, there's always gonna be a problem because there's nothing being collected to put back into the community. Right. And some, you know, and, and I agree with you right, right there, you know, definitely it goes, you know, we bring it back to the welfare, you know, the welfare topic, because that's the essential umbrella topic for, you know, this podcast episode. And it's, you know, it's, it's truly kind of does show you the, 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 the horrors of, of welfare in that sense. Because, you know, people think that, you know, welfare is a, is a great thing, you know, and there's people who line up to make sure that they can re- continue to receive, you know, welfare. There are also some people who decide to, you know, perhaps have more children so they can continue to stay on welfare. And and I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, how detrimental welfare can be, you know, to both your psyche as a human being and also to your financial independence. Because essentially we're just saying here that you're rewarding people to be financially um, uh, financially dependent, right? So the more yeah. financially dependent you are, the more you get, you know, and I think that has led to a really major issue there. Like we stopped caring about people having their own businesses and, and we stopped, you know, allowing people to have investments or general startup capital so they can start to get their financial freedom. And so, you know, I wanted to kind of also move it, move the needle a little bit more towards the business aspect of the inner city communities. Um, when you look at an inner city community today, you know, you see, you know, the, the biggest businesses that you see are like chicken shacks, uh, liquor stores, um, a lot of these things that are, are necessarily not helping the community 100%. You know, you're not seeing a lot of things put into place in terms of business. And and from what I can see going to inner city communities, you know, sometimes I go to Newark and... Um, you know, I sit there and, you know, sometimes I can, I'll chat with people who are from New York. I have some friends who are from New York and, um, you know, we have these, you know, basic conversations and a lot of them there are crying out for an opportunity to have a business. And a lot of them are, you know, doing things in their own ways. Right. So they're making like, you know, kind of street sales and different things. They sell knickknacks and all kinds of, you know, bootleg or, you know, all these different things. And you, you you have people doing hair salons and things like that. But there really isn't a lot of startup investment for these people to actually, one, learn, you know, some of the skill sets that are necessary to do like bigger businesses. And, and two, they don't have the funding to do so. So uh, some people would say, well, you know, they didn't get the education, they don't know how to run a business, and they kind of just leave it at that. Or they, some people live in a world where they feel that, you know, everybody gets an equal opportunity at business loans. But I don't think that's always the case. Um, so could you speak a little bit more, especially being a person who um, is a business owner, um, 
Can you speak to the resources that would be available in the inner city communities for people who wanted to start a business? So let's say, for example, a person in the inner city wanted to start a business, you know, do you think it's accessible for them to do so? And would they be able to acquire the funding that they need um, to start that business? And if they can or cannot, why? They would not require the funding that they need. You see, in this country, we love to say that, say, you know, um, you, if you work hard, you know, you could accomplish great thing. It's wrong. It's who you know and how much money you have in your bank account. Your knowledge means nothing. You could have all the experiences that you, you, you need to have to, have, uh, to run your business professionally. If you don't know the right person, you don't have the right um, bank account, you don't have the, you don't know the right political person, your business is not going to go nowhere. And which is why you see, um, you know, all those chicken shop, all those liquor stores. Yes, they're in the black community, but guess what? Black people don't own them. Right. Black so chicken shacks own. are mostly owned by, um, uh, Arabs, right? So it's a, it's mostly big in the Muslim business. I mean, and then what are the, some of the other liquor stores generally are run by Indians? Uh, we even have, you know, black hair care products and beauty supply stores, and they're not even really owned, owned or run by black people. They're owned by Koreans. So, so <laughs> it's funny, right? They are making money in our communities but they're not giving nothing back to the communities. As, as you know, when it comes to hair, there are certain businesses that they allow the blacks to have is because it's not profitable. We are in a um, financial um, racism thing going on right here. And it's not even funny because if you look at from 1860, black people then, they had businesses after slavery because they knew how to do everything. And you look at, you know, 2020, we only have 2% of black businesses in New York. That's disgraceful. Hmm. How is that even possible? Hmm. There's a system that's in place for small business owners, the government have in place, is designed to discourage you for you to drop one on your own instead of them saying that, hey, guess what? We're not really here to help you. We're just here to pretend like we're helping you, but you're not gonna get nothing from us. So their structure is so hard and complicated, you will give up, you will give up trying. You're not gonna continue because everything you try does not work. I had a government official that told me straight up herself from the mayor's office. I'm not going to mention her name now. She told me to find a local politician to fund in order for me to get a contract. Now, okay, I could do that. But at the same time, they could be like, oh, he's breaking the law and find myself in jail for doing something that they tell me to do. Right, because you then you to, could find yourself in a pay for pay, uh, pay for play exactly. kind of situation, <laughs> and that really exactly. won't help you very much. <laughs> so 
which is what I say that if, if you're not in a circle or you know you um, you don't have certain um, credential, it will be very 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 hard to get through. I could give you stories after stories about businesses, and I you know and I and I want the black community to know and wake up. Don't do your businesses depending on the government. The government is already structured to help the one percenters, no matter what. Starting from the lowest um, business to the highest. Right. And I like how you, you know, you kind of said there, you know, the government is in is structured in place to really uh, pander and cater to the one percent, you know. I, I like what I liked about that statement was that you didn't say, you know, that, you know, the stack is against any particular race, but really it's really towards a, an elite class of wealthy people. And, and, and I think that's very unique in, the, in that sense, because generally you have a situation where people are always saying, you know, it, it has to be against one particular group, but there are tons of people who are also not getting these business opportunities um, because there's a fixed system. And it's, you know, 1% against everyone else. And it's tough. You know, you, it's a really tough situation. As long as you're poor and broke, it doesn't matter what race you are, you're going to go against that system. And that system is designed to destroy you. So <laughs> your color doesn't matter. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, it really does not matter because I see all kinds of people. When we go for, for a bid for a city contract, there's all kinds of people there. It's not just black. There's all kinds of people trying to get a contract and trying to get the businesses going. Mm -hmm. It affects me the most because why? I see it as a black person. I'm in the black community. I get to see it because I mostly interact with them because they're here next to me. But for a Caucasian person or a Chinese person, they're probably going to see it more in their community because that's where they, you know, they see the things happening. Not because it's not happening anywhere else. No, it's happening everywhere. It's just, you know, I could relate to this because this is where I live and this is where I have witnessed. So because I witnessed this, I speak about that. Somebody else will speak about their struggle because that's what they're witnessing. So it's just a, a corrupt system for the black community. The black people could do anything you put in front of them. Any kind of work you put in front of them, they will be able to do it. They can do it. They could run their own business. They could be financially um, independent. They don't have to depend on the government for anything. The problem that we have it's a question of education. We have to re-educate our um, neighborhoods. Um, you know, we have to re-educate our children to make them, you know, to remove them from this um, philosophy or, 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 you know, uh, Dr. King had fought, you know, for this. So therefore, I deserve it. I don't have to do. We have to retrain them. We have to retrain their mind to remove them from that way of thinking. Because me, personally, here's how welfare should work. Let's say I spend 10 years, 20 years working. Something happened. I cannot work no more. That system should be there to support people like, like that, or people that have health issues, 
people that have a learning disability. But if a young man or young woman is strong, full of strength and, and, and energy could work, God, please send them to work. It would be better for them. So I think three, three or four years ago, um, New Jersey passed a law. In order for you to receive the welfare check, you have to go take, um, you have to go to school and take a, um, a course to learn something. That was good. A lot of people pushed back at it, but I'm like, hold up. How is that bad? They'll pay for the school for you, and you will still get your check. And when you finish, you graduated, they will help you find a job. How is it bad? But that's how we were trained. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a very interesting world. Like, I mean, you know, if anybody wants to make changes to, to welfare and the style of welfare, I mean, I think it's very easy to get attacked because, you know, a lot of people, you know, that will depend on those checks and, you know, they want, you know, to be able to access the checks and, you know, want those things to change. But in actuality, if we really want to make a fund fundamental change, that's better um, for the black community as a whole, we're going to have to make some kind of reforms to welfare and we have to make welfare truly work in the benefit for the people who are on it. And I just don't think that, you know, the way that it is set up right now, it, it, that it works for people or, or it benefits people in, it, who need welfare. And for me, you know, my personal opinion on welfare is, is very much similar with yours that, you know, it should definitely be there as a safety net. It definitely shouldn't be something that you can use or, you know, ride throughout a majority of your life unless it's, you know, you're in a predicament where you physically cannot work. I think there definitely should be some, you know, mandated working components there. You know, there's a ton of jobs, you know, that need to be done in terms of community uh, community service projects. Um, there's many things in local governments, you know, that, that could be used and needed, you know, and there's tons of help that could be used and needed in after school programs like we were just talking about earlier in this podcast. You know, there's so much that can be done. And I think, you know, they're not the people who are, you know, granted welfare are not being pushed to that uh, to that to that extent to really give them purpose and to really give them you know something to move on towards you know there's a ton of people on welfare and if all of those people on welfare were able to you know monitor after school programs as an example you know or kind of be there as an aid you know to other parents that you know may not have the time to um, watch their children or, or be there for their children, you know, perhaps even give, giving some care and some aid, uh, to, um, to people who are on welfare so they can basically, um, get a, uh, childcare certification. You know, I think it would be extremely well if we got a lot of people, you know, who were on welfare who, you know, passed their background checks and shown to be, you know, to be good at the, a particular skill, you know, that they, that's another area that they can focus on. You know, there's so much issues in terms of childcare. There's so, so much, you know, discrepancy in what's available for those people. And if we are to, you know, if we were able to maximize on, you know, the people who are getting welfare, you know, to kind of 
propel programs that we desperately need everywhere across the United States. I think we can come up with some type of balance that helps them. And at the same time, they get some opportunity to start their own businesses. So for example, the, looking at the childcare perspective, you know, if they were to start their own daycares, you know, and the gov, you know, we can help them, you know, in terms of getting loans to them um, to kind of start a childcare center or doing things that, you know, may work in that sense. So at least in that sense, you know, you have someone on the welfare system, they start, you know, they're working for the government, but then they break off and they're able to do their own things, you know, well, and we get financial independence. Well, um, one experience, there were a family that I know that was on welfare. And when they got back on their foot and they wanted to leave the welfare system, you know, they couldn't leave the welfare system. Why was that? <laughs> uh, I don't know. They just made it hard for them. They had to pay back everything that they, they, they received in order for them to leave the welfare system. And that was a, a Chinese family. And I'm like, hold up. Wouldn't it be a good thing for me to finally get on my foot to say thank you for your help? I no longer need the help for me to be independent. I would think that was going to be a good thing. But no, once you enter that system, it's very hard for you to leave it. And uh, another thing, look, I would love, I mean, New Jersey, some of the things that you were saying, um, some um, New Jersey already put some of that in place, right? If you're on welfare, um, you go into school, they help you find a babysitter to watch the kids while you go and get your education and stuff like that. Um, I'm going to look look um, into it more, but I know they have to something like that in place, right? For a lot of government officials, they want you to stay on welfare, unfortunately, because why? It's called control. If you don't have, uh, um, you know, a say I'm giving to you, I could control you. So the best way to control people is to give them what they think they want and for them not to be financially independent because if you're financially independent, then you have a voice. They don't want you to have a voice and that's the, you know, <laughs> the best thing to do is like, hey, listen, we're going to give you this, we're going to give you that, support us in November, support us in this, support us in that. It's called control. And that's what is basically, they're controlling our communities with the welfare um, check. Because if they really want to do something to help them come out of their situation, they would have done it a long time ago. When, when Dr. King fought uh, Malcolm X, all these people, they didn't fight for us to remain in our condition. If you listen to their speech clearly, give us the tools so we could do for ourselves. That's what they were saying. That's what they were saying. Give us the tools. Give us the chance and opportunity so we could do for ourselves, not for you to continue to do for us. Let us be independent. And you could never be independent if you're under a system where you're being controlled. Right. No, I totally, I totally agree with you there, hundred percent. And 
you know, I think it's just the, the tough part is just actually being able to, to make it happen and actually getting people to, you know, wake up to, you know, something that they can do. And I think, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I we, we in the middle class or non inner city blacks have, you know, a, a burden to bear as well, you know, as it relates to this and also, you know, upper class and, and wealthy blacks in, in America, because, you know, there are a ton of people who are middle class and upper class and, and wealthy who are, you know, black in America. Um, but th the interesting thing is, is that a lot of those those people who have really some serious financial influence, you know, they have a tendency to do a lot of the same things we see done, you know, globally, right? So they'll put like a basketball field out or they'll do a soccer field or, you know, maybe they'll do something with lunches or help out with reduced lunches and things like that. But, you know, they're not really putting in investment money for people to actually get businesses. And I always found that extremely interesting, you know, because I said, you know, there's so much that could be done. Like, you know, for example, you know, a lot of people do say that, you know, why don't um, black people just pull their money together and, um, you know, create cooperatives, you know, cooperative businesses. You know, we see this happening in certain poor communities um, you know, in white inner cities, right? So, and they're kind of starting these farming cooperatives or grocery store cooperatives and these kind of things where they pool their money together um, and really just make a business based off of what they have. And they each put in a certain amount and, you know, get together and do that. So why do you think that, you know, a, not a lot of us are doing that? You know, or why are middle class blacks not doing that and then encouraging perhaps inner city um, people to come on board and, you know, act as an employee or work or, you know, invest into the business itself? Because, you know, I hate to say it, we aren't educated on that sense. Um, think about it, right? If the white community could do it, right? If, if, if a kid, um, I used to watch um, Shark Tank. You know, you know, this kid, they, they used to make these um, bracelets. Mm -hmm. The whole community support them. We don't do that because our mentality is I have to get mine. It's not about supporting somebody else to come off the ground so they could open the door so somebody else could come in. It's about, nope, I have to get mine and close the door behind me. There will always be more success in the white community versus the black community because there's something that they understand. They understand working together and supporting one another is the best way for them to move forward. Unfortunately, in our community, you know how long I've been working on to get 10 black people together to put money together to get a building to be financially um, set we don't have to depend on nobody. We don't have to work for nobody. We can work for ourselves. Until now, I still cannot pull it together. You know why? Because we are not educated that way. We are not educated on uh, um, um, an investment. We don't know how to invest. We know how to spend. We do not know how to invest because oftentimes, 
we put the money somewhere. We wanted to be uh, uh, to have a fifty percent um, uh, on top of it the next day. We don't have, have the patience to wait for the money to grow. Have black people in this community and in, in our community, they don't even have a CD in the bank because that money is locked away for like a year. They don't have the patience to wait for a year. And trust me, I tried with several of my friends and I try to tell them, listen, you get paid this amount, put this amount somewhere. Right. And I think it's, you know, and I think, you know, to push back or play devil's advocate, you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, if they're just trying to survive and they're just trying to get, you know, put food on the table, it's really hard for them to try to set something aside. Like if they're just trying to live to pay for their rent for, you know, the people who are not getting a welfare check and, you know, people who have to rely on their salary to pay for their homes. So if they, if they're already struggling, um, you know, because the rent is so expensive and everything is the way it is in our wonderful world that is, you know, life. Um, how are they supposed to put something aside, you know, to make it happen? And what See, do you say to that? They control where you live based on what they pay you. Why is it that rent, everything around you is going up, but your pay grade, your check does not go up? There's a reason for it. They want to keep you in your mental stage where you are. They don't want you to be successful. They don't want you to have good things. Think about it. We donated a billion of dollars to other countries, but yet you're telling me that you cannot feed the people in your own backyard? Where's the Clinton Foundation? Where's those other Bill Gates? Where, where's their foundation for the people here in, the, um, in America? Where's our foundation for the black community? Who's feeding us? Nobody. So mm -hmm. it's not like they don't have the money to do it. It's not like they don't have the chance and opportunity to put something together to do it. It's because they do not want to do it. And the bourgeois that we have in offices, they're not doing nothing to help us because it's the same mentality. I got to get mine. I'm there. I made it all on my own. My mother didn't struggle. My father didn't struggle. I made it on my own. So therefore, make it on your own. No. Hmm. There is chance and opportunity there's enough money in this country to solve the problem in all communities. We do not have enough people standing up to fight for these kind of things. And the people that we fight to put in offices, once they get there, they forgot who we are. So the cycle repeats itself. So I have a, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn. I could give you hundreds of stories. It doesn't look good for me to be in welfare and for my daughter or for my son to inherit the welfare system. That means I failed them. I did not provide for them. I did not make sure that they have the education so they didn't have to be in this system. My father, for my disability in school, they was forcing him to sign a paper for the government to give a um, certain amount of money every month. My father said, no, at the time, 
tell you the truth, I was mad because I was young and ignorant. I was mad at him because my friends was getting it. But he said, no, you are a man. You're going to work like everybody else. You're not going to depend on people for, uh, for, for you to be able to eat. You're going to work like everybody else and feed yourself. Right. And one thing that I find very important as well is to kind of look at how other societies do it, right? So you look at Caribbean um, Americans, Asian Americans, um, a lot of different um, minority groups, right, that come, that perhaps may come from, from nothing and then, you know, are able to gain prominence, right? You know, some major things that they do is that you know, let's take, for example, the Indian community. When a lot of people come here, they have, you know, kind of like shared hostels, right? So they're, they're basically, you know, sitting there like maybe 10 plus people in a particular room, right? And, you know, they're on cots and, you know, on the floors and different things like that. So they're putting all of their stuff together, you know, just so they don't have to pay too much money in rent. And they, so that way they can save money, you know, people or families come together and they live, you know, in two or three families in a particular apartment and they work until, you know, they work and, and do their best to try to save as much money as they can living that way. And I think sometimes what we see as Americans, right, we have this culture of individualism, right? And that's just as Americans in general, we all want to have our own things and we want to be independent and have it our own way. We don't want to share, you know, a space and we, you know, we really care about our personal space. And I would say that, you know, we as a community have to do a better job at, you know, teaching people about a lot of these things that other minority groups do that, you know, may not be the best in the beginning, but eventually can help, you know, get them or elevate them to another location despite, you know, really tremendous circumstances. And I think we have to do a better job, you know, knowing these this information and knowing about other people and, and, and bringing this information to um, our brothers and sisters so they understand that, you know, there may be some initial pain, but once you get through that pain of sharing, you know, multi, uh, you know, a, a, a one person or one family apartment with three or four families, and you and, and you really just stretch everything to make ends meet, there will be a light at the end of the tunnel, and that light at the end of the tunnel is financial independence and you know freedom away from government assistance. You see, those those other groups, right? Those other countries, right? There's one thing that you have to remember with them. First thing that they put first in their family life is education and knowledge. <clears throat> the first thing we put in our kids' mind is, uh, um, um, in our kids' eyes, is the television. So <clears throat> we don't know how to live with one another. What you say here is brilliant because I see a lot of Hispanic that does it. They live all together, they pay very little in rent, and they save. So, and I, you know, they save within three, five years, they have enough to start a business. And I have to give them credit for it. I cannot criticize them because why? They understand something that we do not understand. 
We want to fly. We want to walk before we could crawl. They know how to crawl on the floor and then slowly, surely pick themselves up the ground. We want to just get up and walk. We do not want to do the baby step that it takes to get where we need to be because we're so in a rush to do it. So in our community, I hope and pray with New Black Nation, this is something that we should be focusing on to re-educate and, and talk, like, you know, have a conversation with them, see where, they, where, where they're coming from. I have, I have people that's always calling me, you know, to ask me for business advice. I always give it to them. Why? Because your success is my success. My failure will be your failure. And it, it's a term that we have in the hood that we used to use. But, you know, if, if, you, if, if I could help you, or if you could come out the struggle, that's one person out of the struggle. And how much more people could we put, you know, get out of the struggle and out of the life if we just, you know, kind of took some, you know, initial pain, you know, by bunking up with each other and being a little extra close and, you know, having that opportunity to kind of pull our funds and save, you know, save the money to do, you know, what we need to do. Um, and that is our hour for the podcast um we try to stay within that hour i mean commit to that hour but that was a wonderful discussion and i think that's something we can definitely bridge off onto and and bring into our next episode which i think could focus more on what are some specific things that people are doing in other minority communities to really get themselves ahead and have some money you know, to form businesses and do things like that. But I think we talked about a lot of interesting things that could help. Um, and definitely um, the one of the biggest things that I would take away from here is that we truly as a people need to learn how to crawl before we can walk. And I really love that statement. And I thank you for bringing that up into the discussion because I think it's, it's something that we can take and really move forward on as a community. Um, so thank you very much. And uh, all of you <laughs> for listening to our podcast. Um, you can find me on the real Brandon Wong um, at the real Brandon Wong. So that's on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, so you can definitely find me there if you want to ask some more questions or talk more about the show or participate in the show yourself. Um, and Greg, um, perhaps you can give an email or contact or an at social media so people well, can find you. If they go to uh, Facebook, I'm on Facebook. I will be posting these on Facebook to get feedback. 